ask you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 18 through 22. I remind you this is God's holy and errant and infallible word. Let's hear it as such. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the destruction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels, and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is a very difficult passage, and we are limited in our understanding, and there are alternative views of various things, but I pray that you would give us a spirit of harmony, a spirit of love, a spirit of understanding, and a spirit of humility before the word of God. Remind us that we do not know all things. But what we do know, you, O God, have been pleased to reveal to us. We ask, Lord, that you would give us delight in your word. Teach us, Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Rob Bell writes in his book, Love Wins. He is a... He is a Wolf in sheep's clothing, someone to be avoided, not listened to. A man who is deeply spiritually confused, who is not in any way a source of gospel wisdom. But he writes in his book, At the center of the Christian tradition since the first church have been a number who insist that history is not tragic, hell is not forever, and love in the end wins, and all will be reconciled to God all of which he has just stated is contradicted easily by Scripture. The problem is when mankind begins to sentimentalize and create an alternative to Scripture that is untrue. People love to hear it because we are prone to having ears, desiring to be tickled with the things that we that match up with our personalities, that match up, match up with our sentimentalities as well. The Archbishop of the Roman of the Russian Orthodox Church says Christ descended using this passage Christ descended into hell granting them unbelieving souls another chance of salvation by preaching to them the gospel of the kingdom so that they might live according to God in the spirit. This passage does not mention hell. This passage does not mention the gospel. This passage does not say that Christ preached. There is a lot. There are a lot of things in this passage that contradict such statements, and we ought to be very, very careful. I offer by way of warning this morning that we bring into the text our own assumptions and presumptions before we 
listen to what the text says. And I understand that we may come to an an agreement of minds, that we may disagree in some sense over what this passage means, but that's all right. Uh, That's within the brotherhood of God's people who believe in the things essential. Well, let's examine what this text says so that we might think God's thoughts after him and be conformed to the word of God. Or transformed, pardon me, by the word of God. A lot of people say a lot of things about death, don't they? Including Rob Bell and this Russian Orthodox priest who said that Christ goes and proclaims the gospel to people after they have died. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says that there is death and after that the judgment. Uh, There is nothing in between. There is no intermediate state. And the Roman Catholic Church pins its limbus, uh, um, its limbo, its its limbus and phantom, as well as its uh, purgatory, uh, limbus purgatorium or, or whatever it may be precisely called uh, on this very passage. The idea that an individual can be, who has died in judgment or, or still in some way in their sins, some sins not yet being forgiven, are, are, are consigned to hell or a place after life, before and apart from heaven. And that in some way they can be either prayed into heaven, sanctified in that place, and prepared for glory. These things are contradictory to Scripture. They have taken the idea of limbus patrum, a place where souls of Old Testament individuals went, including such men as Abraham and Moses and Jacob, and waited until such time as Christ could come after his resurrection in order to preach the gospel to them that they might be saved. Well, that's nonsense. We're told that Abraham believed and was justified. We see that these individuals were taken up into heaven. Moses immediately went into the presence of the Lord. Jacob was promised that he would be saved. They didn't, they didn't need the gospel to be preached to them at a later point after they were kept in prison, which this passage speaks to. You mean godly men and women who loved God and obeyed and were justified by their faith were kept in prison for eons until Christ would come and preach the gospel to them? The gospel is in the Old Testament. Every Old Testament saint has been saved in the same way in which you and I have been saved, by believing the gospel of the Messiah who would come and be their righteousness. That their sins would be forgiven by the grace of God. This was preached in Ezekiel 36, in Genesis 3.15. It was preached to Abraham and Moses, Jacob and David. It was preached to all the Old Testament saints. And it was shown, it was illustrated in all the Old Testament sacrifices and words and works. The gospel is evident from the beginning to the end of Scripture. At any point, at any re, at, at any At any rate, according to their own words in Roman Catholicism, Old Testament believers were gathered into a region called Limbus Patrum, or borderland of the patriarchs, called Abraham's bosom, where they remained without the beatific vision of God, yet without suffering until Christ during the three days in which his body 
lay in the grave, came and released them. Again, contra-biblical. If the Bible doesn't teach it, we shouldn't believe it. And the shirt, certainly the church should not teach it as doctrine. At any rate, <clears throat> even within Protestant circles, to some extent, there is the idea of Christless souls receiving mercy on no, without base, without any reason, without faith. That certainly God will be merciful to this person, exalting the mercy and love of God, but also ignoring God's command to believe and repent. And that without faith and repentance, one cannot please God. That the day of salvation is when one lives and may believe and trust. Somehow, I don't know where it comes from, but the Protestant church affirms and believes, and at least in some senses it comes from various sects as well as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, that one is given, uh, these are cults, and one is given uh, in some way, somehow, a second chance. Um, that this is not true. These things were not found in Scripture. They're not spoken of in another passage in Scripture. Usually, and in, in, in the best sense, in the Reformed faith, uh, there is an assumption that where there is a text that is difficult to understand, uh, we must interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so if, if, the, if the Bible speaks of a second opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel to those who have died without believing, and let's just say, let's remember that without believing, someone who is, is not a believer is not someone who is simply passively not having had the opportunity to believe. This is a person who has refused to believe, who has seen God in his creation, who has heard the gospel, and Romans 1 through 3 shows us they are not without guilt. They're, they're deeply guilty for the rejection of God. God has given them over to an unbelieving mind. The Bible says <clears throat> that we are saved by grace. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, but after that the judgment... Jesus said, I go my way and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. He's not saying you're going to get a second chance. But wait, there's another offer. No, he doesn't say that. I go my way and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. Besides all of this, he says also when he is speaking of Lazarus and his death, there's a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you, cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from there. And from our confession as well, we learn that the souls of believers are at their death, made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory. Their bodies being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. When you die... You will immediately be made perfect in holiness in your soul. Your body will be interned in the grave. You will immediately, soul and personage, pass into glory. And your bodies, being still united to Christ, will rest with the promise of the eventual resurrection and perfection of your body, uniting of your body and soul, such that you will stand before the Lord bodily 
and you will see him face to face. The main intent of this passage to bring us back to our text is found in Heidelberg Catechism, question 44, which asks, why is there added he descended into hell? And the answer is that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself with this, that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains and terrors and hellish agony in which he was plunged during his sufferings, but especially in the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. But to take up the whole of our text, I think we find three different things, or well, we'll say four. The substitution of Christ, the patience of the Father, the baptism of the Spirit, and the ascension of Christ. First, the substitution of Christ. A bit of theology. Jesus died for our sins. We understand that. Christ died for sinners. His death had a redemptive purpose. His death was for the sake of redeeming sinners from their sins. Redeeming sinners from the wrath of God. It's also not repeatable. No one could do what Christ did. No one did what Christ did. No spirit of Christ could fall upon a man to make him come back in a different age and die for the people of that age. There was only one being in all of the universe who could die for sinful human beings. The divine being, the Son of God, who took upon himself human flesh and died for sinners' sake to reconcile us to God. It's not repeatable. It cannot be added to. Hebrews clarifies over and over and over again. It was a once-for-all sacrifice. It does not. It cannot be offered again and again, week after week after week, nor trampled under feet, underfoot. It is a one-time sacrifice for all. Now, this flies against the Catholic emphasis. I'm sorry, but today this text is used emphatically, well, repeatedly by the Roman Catholic Church for doctrinal error. They emphasize Mary as co-redemptrix. In other words, in some way participating in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Her suffering has atoning value as well, is their their idea. It's a wonderful example, the life and the death of, of, of Mary and her suffering. But Jesus had to die for her sins as well. Mary is a wonderful example to follow, but she cannot die for your sins. She was not commissioned for that work. She was not placed on that cross. Christ was. Mary could not atone for your sins and cannot atone for your sins. She is worshiping before the face of her Savior and her Messiah. Well, what do we come to in this text this morning? Christ died for sins. In the original text, it says Christ suffered for sins. Now, the idea that when we see it, the the idea of death in our passage is not contradictory to the context, for it says and uses that very word in the latter section, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. But clearly in this passage, it says for Christ suffered for sins once for all. That connects us to what Peter has been speaking about. And Peter, Peter's epistle is an epistle about suffering. And he's talked about suffering and about enduring through suffering. And the example that Christ is in our suffering, such that we can follow his example and suffer as he suffered and find the grace that he found 
We can be encouraged as we suffer because Christ suffered for us. But here, clearly, his suffering is not one that can be an example to us, but one that is, is, has atoned for us. He has suffered for us. He suffered for sins once for all. Once for all. We do not offer his body and blood every week, nor every month, nor every service or mass. It was offered once for all. When we receive the Lord's Supper on a monthly basis, we receive a symbol and a sign of what Christ has already done. We are not re-offering a sacrifice that was made once for all. The just for the unjust. That's pretty clear. Christ is just. Christ is righteous. I am not just. I am not righteous. We live in a day and age where we think that we understand what is just and what is righteous, but mankind in general does not. It is only when we go to God that we begin to understand what justice and righteousness really are. And he did this so that he might bring us to God. What an extraordinary thing. We see in this very first phrase, substitution, Christ stood in your place. Christ took what was what belonged to us. By his stripes we are healed. He received the punishment that was ours because of his infinite mercy, because of his suffering, because of his endurance on the cross. Substitution. God substituted his son in your place. And that's what we must believe today, that Christ was substituted in our place for what we deserve so that he would receive the wrath and curse of God in our place so that we would not receive that wrath and curse, but rather we would receive the mercy and the grace of God. And so we see easily the substitution of Christ, but we also see what that means for us. If he was substituted in our place, It means that we receive God's mercy and his grace and we are welcomed into his sight and we can boldly approach his throne of grace, but he has brought us to God. In Christ's death, by removing the obstruction of sin, by removing what has offended the majesty and the holiness of God, by removing those things which were an impediment to our ability to to be reconciled to God, he has reconciled us to God, brought us into his presence, such that the disposition of God toward us is now no longer of wrath, but only of love, of mercy, of grace, of acceptance in his beloved son, of adoption as his children. He has brought us to God. I would ask you, this week, devotionally, as you draw near the Lord, to the Lord in worship and in prayer daily on your own, <clears throat> that you would repeat this to your heart, remind your soul, Jesus, Jesus Christ, my Savior, died for my sins once, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring me to God. Amen. You cannot go to God apart from Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way, not Muhammad, not Rob Bell and his universalism, not Roman Catholic institutions, words or works, not your or my personal righteousness. 
We can go to God because through Christ we have received grace and we receive it by faith. He has brought us to God. And if Christ has brought us to God, if he is our substitute, then there is nothing that separates us from God anymore. There is no work yet to be done. We are not waiting for a future justification. We have been brought near to God. Nearness implies relationship, intimacy, It implies complete and full acceptance. And he does this, he has accomplished this through his death in the flesh. Now the question, first question of the text comes to us at the very end of verse 18. What does it mean that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit? Well, we understand that he was put to death in the flesh. That's pretty self-explanatory. There was the eternal son of God on the cross. And in his flesh, he was put to death. God cannot die. The infinite Son of God cannot die. God himself did not die on the cross. And yet we can say in in some sense, yes, God died on the cross. In his bodily form, the Lord Jesus. His body ceased. His heart stopped. His bodily functions stopped. And in the giving of his life and the surrendering up of his spirit to God, he made atonement for sin, yours and mine. We understand that. We don't contest that. But what does it mean? But he was made alive in the Spirit. Does it mean that he was made alive in the Spirit with a capital S, the third person of the Trinity? Or does it mean, and that in that sense, the Spirit in Romans chapter 8 makes clear that the Spirit was participant in the power and the wonder of the resurrection? Does it mean that in that sense? Or does it mean that he was made alive in the Spirit in the sense that Though his body was interred in the grave, his spirit ascended into spiritual realms. It can mean either one. I leave it to you to decide. I I personally take the position that he was simply, his spirit ascended into the assembly of the, the host of heaven, into the presence of God, that he himself, his spirit, dwelt in spiritual realms immediately and intensely was not bound by his physical presence or his body being interred in the grave. He went immediately into the presence of the Father. We're talking about Jesus. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then in verse 19 it says, in which also he went and made proclamation in the spirits, now in in the prison, now in prison. And again, I think that very... The construct of that following phrase in verse 19 necessitates that we're speaking of Jesus, his spirit. He was made alive in the spirit. In other words, his spirit ascended to the presence of God, the father. And he, Jesus, still went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, it is it's an odd statement. And there are various theories what it means when it says Peter says, in which he also went and made proclamation. So here is Jesus. He, his body is interred in the grave. His spirit ascends to God. He is alive. Though his body is in the grave, he has endured the hell of the cross and of the grave physically. And so he has made proclamation in the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the 
in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. There are various theories that pre-existent Christ preached to Noah's generation through Noah. That Christ spoke through Noah's words. Early church fathers have said, when the word is preached, God is speaking. That the word preached is the word of God. If Noah was speaking, and Noah was preaching prior to the event of the flood, he was speaking of the coming judgment of God. Only eight people believed and went into that uh, that ark. All the rest, the hordes of people, of all of humanity, did not listen, would not believe. Did Christ, the Spirit of Christ, preach through Noah to his generation? There's another view, and that is that Christ, after the crucifixion, descended to the place of the dead to offer salvation a second time. A second chance for salvation after death. And it's a popular view with liberals and with sects such as the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. It's a good way to appeal to people, to masses of people, who find it a a real struggle to believe that, yes, after death there is no more chance. That you have until you die to believe and be saved. There's no second opportunity. There's a third view. Does Christ, that Christ, Christ proclaims to fallen angels his death on the cross. This is the view I believe the text is preaching to us this morning. Let's follow it. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So his body has been interred in the grave, but he is alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who is in prison? The Bible every time speaks of people who are in hell or Gehenna or the grave or in a burning lake of fire, but never refers to people who have been lost and died in their sins, consigned to God's wrath as being in prison. Always grave, Gehenna, lake of fire, the place of gnashing and weeping of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Never prison. Where does it speak of prison? It only ever speaks of prison when it speaks of spiritual beings held under the power of God. It seems that angelic beings were had a demonic and significant presence amongst the people of Noah's days. They were fallen angels who had an impact upon mankind, and God saw fit to imprison those beings. Uh, when he caused the world to be shaken by the flood, consumed, and the ungodly to die in the floods, flood waters. He also imprisoned wicked beings, spiritual beings, and imprisoned them such that they have been bound. Revelation 20 speaks of the un, the, the, the break, the, the, the freeing from prison of Satan in the last days. But we are told that God was, was patient during this day. And he preached that, that, that Noah, well, that, that uh, when, Pardon me, verse 20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. 120 years Noah preached and prayed and proclaimed the gospel, 
proclaimed that judgment was coming, but that God could save. All they needed to do was believe in that God, enter into the vehicle of salvation. Eight souls were saved. That's it. Noah and his family. Eight souls and many animals. And so what we understand is that Noah's Ark is not just about animals and Noah and his family. It's about the proclamation of God and the means of salvation. It's about God proclaiming, come, come and be saved. And man saying, I don't want it. I refuse. And about spiritual beings misleading mankind who also misleds to such a degree that not a single one of all of the sea of humanity stepped into that ark with Noah and his family. They refused to be saved. And to give such persons a second chance? Is God obligated to do that? They were disobedient when the presence of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the destruction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. But then in verse 22, we read this. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. I believe that last verse references exactly what's taking place in verses 19 and 20. The, pers- the, 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 the beings that were imprisoned were angels and authorities and powers that have been subjected to Jesus Christ. Christ went into spiritual realms in the Spirit, and he himself proclaimed that he was Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that he had, that all the kingdoms of the world had been subjected to him, that he had power and victory over death, that he had conquered sin and hell and death. And he didn't preach the gospel to them. Euangelizo and the the gospel message is not clarified in this passage at all. But it says he proclaimed. In other words, he stated to them, I am Lord of Lords. I am King of Kings. All things are mine. And the Father has handed the kingdom over to me. More than that, I have had victory over sin. And I have delivered my people from the domain of sin and darkness. That's what Jesus did. Well, his body was in the grave. He clarified to angelic beings still imprisoned. I am king of kings. I am lord of lords. All power is given to me. I am your lord and I am your king. It's an extraordinary statement. He made proclamation, does not say that he evangelized. He made proclamation to to the spirits. Now, that when we hear about spirits, the spirits of human beings in death, uh, they're always in in hell and 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 not believers. They're in Gehenna. They're in 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 Sheol. They're they're sub, they're in in the lake of fire. They're in, uh, in in weeping and gnashing of teeth. We never hear of them ever ever imprisoned scripturally, but also a different word is used for the spirit of men and women. It's pneuma. Or, pardon me, psuche. It's, it's the soul of a human being. That word is not used here. What's used here is spirits, which generally, scripturally, almost always applies to angelic beings, demonic beings, spiritual beings. So even within our text, there is evidence that he proclaimed to spirits, spiritual beings, 
Later on in verse 22, angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him, he proclaimed that he had won the victory. They were in fact in subjection to him. And they now served him and his purposes. So that's what we come to here in this passage is this idea of the patience of the Father. It's that second point in this passage. It's extraordinary that God waited. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, this phrase alludes to the preaching of Noah for 60 years, all the way up to 120 years, depending upon the timing of events. Eight entered into the ark as well as the animals, and that was it. God was not impatient in his severity, just the reverse. He was slow to anger. I saw recently a quote from uh, R.C. Sproul. I, I saw it. It was He was in a concert. It was an after con- uh, conference. Pardon me, not a concert. He was at the conference, and there was an after uh, session uh, series of questions from the audience, and one person asked a question, Seeing the severity of God against Adam and Eve and against sin, what do you say about the judgment of God in the future, etc., etc.? And R.C. Sproul just stopped right there and he said, what is wrong with you people? His indignation was over the idea that God was so severe in his judgment against sin. Yes, mankind died. Yes, from that day forward, man died and has been dying Ever since. And no one has escaped that death. And yet God clothed Adam and Eve. And yet God spoke Genesis 3.15 to them. That one seed would come from her. That would crush the head of the serpent. That what they experienced then in the curse. Would one day be. They would be freed from it. The gospel was preached in seed form. And then he clothed them and sent them out of the garden and promised that though it would be hard, they would still be able to feed their families. He would still draw from them children. He would still make of them a human race. And then he expands later on with promises of grace and mercy through Messiah, through Jesus Christ, and he clarifies and displays who he is. We do well to remember the grace of God in Christ Jesus. The mercy and the patience of God the Father. He is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. The Bible makes much of the patience and forbearance of God in postponing merited judgments in order to extend the day of grace and give more opportunity to repentance. Do you remember when Abraham spoke of Sodom and Gomorrah? If there's 20, right? 50 righteous there. If there's 20, if there's 10, if there's 5, And every time God says, yes, I'll be merciful. Yes, I will. I'll deliver the city. The Lord is patient. He forbears. You think of Jesus and the suffering he endured from wicked men and women who ridiculed him, who called for his seizure and death who even though when Pilate said, I can't give you Barabbas, they said, give us Barabbas. We'd we'd rather have a lying, deceiving murderer in our midst than righteous Jesus. 
And yet in the very first few chapters of Acts, we read thousands believed and were being added to the kingdom of God. Who were those thousands drawn from? The same who stood before God and Pilate and Jesus and said, we do not want Jesus, give us Barabbas. If it weren't for the long-suffering patience of God, I would be damned. We have no hope unless God is patient with us. Thanks be to God, he is not as severe as our sin against him commands or demands. He is slow to anger and long-suffering. He he is patient and he forbears. He gives grace and opportunity for repentance. The course of history has shown that God, according to Romans 9.22, has endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. It's one of the marvels of Scripture, isn't it? And we have to go to the person of God. We have to marvel at our God, that he forgives sin, but also that he is patient with the sinner. It's no wonder that the New Testament stresses, especially Peter in this context, that Long-suffering is a Christian virtue and duty. It is in truth part of the image of God. How can we respond to this? Weep over the patience of God. He was patient with me. Some of us know what it was, that God was patient with our years of wandering, our years of deep sin, our years of rejection, the years that we would, we would do right to stand before him in justice, and for him to condemn us on the basis of our sins. And yet he is not. He is forbear, He has forborn. He has been merciful. And one day we were saved according to his grace through Christ. And even now, oh, the Lord is patient. How many times do we sin daily against the Lord and sin in the same repeated practices? The same patterns of sin are, are still in my life from 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I know a little bit of relief from them now. I know a little bit of how to deal with sin, but I still struggle with the same besetting sins. Maybe you do too. We'll cry out to God because he is patient with you. Give thanks to God that he is patient. Learn to marvel at his patient. Imitate him in your dealings with other people. Be patient with the people of God. Give them a chance to grow too, for them to experience the grace of God too, as you have. If the Lord, if the Lord makes our lives difficult or sends to us a season of suffering, perhaps it's to awaken us from our spiritual sleepiness. Amen. By letting us from our sense of need of Him fall fall back into a a healthy self-abasement and faith to seek his face. Well, thirdly, we hear of the baptism of the Spirit. I'll, I'll say finally, corresponding to that in verse 21, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why does Noah turn up here? One of the most significant responses on the part of God to sin. The ancient Jews associated with the rebellion of Satan 
with the evil earth of Noah's day. Noah's story is more than just about, as I said a few minutes ago, two by two animals, 40 days and nights, the flood and the, the ark. John Calvin says, for in these words, he teaches us that baptism is the main part, in its main part, is spiritual. In baptism, we pledge unto God to live for him, but he himself seals us in the day of salvation. He seals to us the Spirit, welcomes us into the fellowship of the church. We come into fellowship with one another and into right relationship with God. And it is all symbolized our salvation in receiving of that water sprinkled or immersed or poured. Any one of those modes. No mode is more sanctified than the other. All speak of the washing and cleansing of the word and of God and of grace and in the blood of Christ. For in these words, he teaches us that baptism in its main part is spiritual, and then that it includes the remission of sins, renovation of the old man. For how can there be a good and pure conscience until our old man is reformed and we be renewed in the righteousness of God? And how can we answer before God unless we rely on and are sustained by a gratuitous pardon of our sins? And baptism symbolizes all of it. Here, Catholics believe that en operat, en, en, pardon me, en operat, en opere, operetto, or some deviation of those words. In other words, in the act of baptism, the work is performed. So you receive baptism, there you are regenerated. There your soul is saved. That's at no point ever biblically preached, although here we have this language, and it confounds us to some degree. It's difficult to understand, but corresponding to that, baptism now saves us. How does that correspond to what verse 18 and 19 said? So clearly we have to understand in this obscure text that we have to interpret Scripture by clearer passages. And even within our own passage this morning, it's clearly identified for Christ suffered for sins once for all. That's what saves you. And baptism signifies all of it. Symbolizes all of it. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It is in this way that baptism saves us. We were baptized, dear friend, an indication of in, in a symbolic representation of God saving you by his grace. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in him that does administer them. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church believes the efficacy is bound up in the person. And yet we continue to hear about Roman Catholic priests who have violated the commands of God. or in need of God's grace and forgiveness and the application of the blood of Christ because they're clearly not saved. That's not true of all of them, but it is certainly true of some. The truth is that it's the effectual means of salvation in the sacraments is not because of the hands of those who administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them that by faith receive them. Well, conclusion this morning, what are we encouraged by the patience of God 
the substitution of Jesus Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Can we look back at our baptism and say, yes, on that day I received, and on that day I gave public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and faith came home to me. I entered visibly into the fellowship of the church. I entered visibly into the fellowship of the kingdom of God before God's people by profession of faith, the laying on of hands of godly men. Well, additionally, Christ's vindication is a pattern of our vindication. If you suffer in this life, dear friends, you too will die, yes, but you will be raised. And when you are raised, God will vindicate you before all humanity and show that you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, that Christ died for you, the unjust or the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. May God be pleased to bless this passage, this scripture to us. As we recognize, as we leave this passage this morning, let us also own exactly what it says in verse 22, that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Therefore, you and I need not fear anything. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we give thanks to you this morning for this passage. We thank you that there are wonderful revelations of the word of God, of of the work of Christ, the blessings of Christ in our salvation. We thank you for the truth of the word of God. We give thanks, Lord, to the, the spirit the Son, the Father, for the triune work of grace in our souls, the triune work of redemption, of encouragement, of reconciliation. We thank you, Jesus, for your strong, glorious proclamation there before all the spiritual denizens held in prison, that you are Lord of lords and King of kings, that all things have been subjected to you that all things have been placed under your feet, that you are the king, you are the Lord, something which you, during the time of testing with Satan, would not do. But when the Father exalted you above all things, you proclaimed the truth, that you are Lord of lords and king of kings, the prince of peace, the Messiah of your people, before whom the, the before your face the accuser cannot accuse us, because you are the Lord, and He is not. We thank you, Lord. We ask that you would help us to live and to rejoice in Jesus Christ, our substitute. It is in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. <laughs>